0: Uh, I came from Afghanistan to Iran and from Iran to Turkey, from Turkey to Greece, ways to Macedonia, Macedonia to Serbia, Serbia to Hungary, Hungary to Austria, Austria to Germany and then France. And when we were crossing Turkey to Greece, our dengue was drowned. So we were like 74 people person in a dengue and the waves was too high and uh, yeah, the dinghy was full of water so it got drowned and the engine stopped so for our luck there was someone because we were near the turkish shore uh, around 150 or 200 meter there was a car who stopped maybe civilian someone who called the police and, and the police came with the boat and with the cars and they just saved us For the second time we tried, so we crossed for the second time. I have seen many bad things, like people died in my front, people hit by trucks, people hit by like trains. And I can't remind those stories if I remind those stories. So it's a bit like for me, not... I have cried. Hello,
1: everyone. That was an excerpt from the documentary The Hungry Road produced by today's guest, Barbara Flood. Barbara hails from Ireland and spent an extensive amount of time traveling to and working in the refugee camps in Calais. The Hungry Road is a compilation of interviews she conducted there. In this interview, I asked Barbara about her experience there, the kind of people she met, what their reasons were for taking on the perilous journey we've just heard referred to, how working there affected her views on such things as open borders and freedom of movement, and the kind of reactions she received when she went back home. I start out by asking what the initial shock was like of being exposed to such an environment.
2: Yeah, obviously, like Jesus, it's it's a uh, it's a shanty town. Like it was, it was obviously I, I haven't I haven't really been outside Europe much, and um, yeah, it was a shock because it's France and you're going, oh my God, how can people live like this in France? Um, but then it's funny, you get used to it. So I don't know, you you kind of. The dirt and the conditions and the cold and at that stage it was very muddy, and it was people were still in a lot of tents. they didn't have shelters yet at that stage. But when you talk to people and you just hear their stories, it was that that would upset you more. it wasn't the conditions it was people's stories um people's just just at the end of their tether just they'd come, and they were just kind of stuck here now with this at this final border. And they were still trying to cross, obviously, to England, a lot of them. And it was just really difficult.
1: So are these but, mostly Syrian people?
2: No, no. Mostly, I would say Afghan and probably Sudanese, with right. a lot of air train and, um, yeah, Syrian, not that many Syrian people in Calais. Certainly by the time I was going back over in March, would they would have been less Syrian there.
1: Okay, did you get a sense from them as to why this has increased so much in the past few years with so many people from diverse locations?
2: I think people have always been coming through Calais, it's just that they started putting in better controls there, so the English government invested millions in um, more border security to stop people getting through. and. I mean, because I met people there from Afghanistan that had actually been living in England and gotten deported back to Afghanistan and then had come back up and were trying to get back over to England and whereas ten years ago they were able to man they were able to cross from Calais okay. easily enough um now they were finding it more difficult to get uh, it and over. what's the
1: appeal of England for them as opposed to any other european uh,
2: you know like this was this was a whole thing <sighs> like, I would just spend a lot of my time thinking. You know, what about just claiming in France? What about, you know, um, just kind of calling it a day? And especially people with kids or who some of the women that were pregnant. I don't know. It wasn't completely rational. For some people, it was they had family there. That's fair Mm -hmm. enough. They had an uncle, a brother, just someone. They had a connection. They knew that they'd have a couch to sleep on. Someone might set them up. A lot of black work in in England. You know, you could could get a job pretty easily um, in the black market compared to france it's a lot harder so it wasn't nobody ever said to me oh i'm going over because i want to get a council house and live off benefits it was all i want to work i want to and my my uncle has a chippers and i could get a job there or you know my cousin's a delivery driver he might be able to get me a job so work was was a big thing okay and and culturally and culturally just sorry and you know they were just into the football teams or they knew the, the music they were it was a lot of little Little funny things, like, that you wouldn't think would be.
1: You wouldn't think that. You wouldn't think a football team would.
2: Yeah, and and actually also a huge part of it was that they were treated so badly in France. Right. They just, they had this hope that at least if they went another place, maybe it would be better. So there was always this kind of thing, just keep going, keep going until we find somewhere that actually feels a bit safer and uh, where they would feel a bit more welcome.
1: And they must have felt absolutely no prospects back in Sudan or Eritrea or Afghanistan to... A life, and there's a sense I get right that you would endure that, that level of hardship trekking with a family, perhaps pregnant, making this perilous journey uh, either from Afghanistan or across the Mediterranean, and then being prepared to live. What kind of stories did you hear about their lives back home?
2: Um, yeah, somewhere were uh, had family members shot by Taliban. Um, I'm just thinking of if I think of it in terms of Afghanistan first, Taliban were a big. Big push factor. Like, I mean, the situation there, especially for people whose fathers or anyone who had had connection with the U.S. or English. Like, there was one guy. I think he was a translator for some. I think maybe the English military or something. But anyway, he he ended up here and he was looking for side He he wasn't getting it. Um, but uh, yeah, those kind of religious groups, those Islamic. Terrorist groups were a huge push factor. I mean, obviously, some of the Kurdish Syrians that I initially met in that September talked a lot about that and just getting a knock on the door, like you know, we, we want we want you to come. Like say this doctor, for instance, he, we want you to come and help us. And he was just like, "Okay, yeah, no problem." And then legged it Yeah. You know, um, it did depend. Some people, their stories, and I, and it sounds a bit funny because like people obviously have to ramp it up can't just say well I just wanted to go to England because I wanted to like for some people genuinely they just wanted to have a different life a better life their chances like there was one Iranian guy that I knew he ended up going back to Iran it was just so horrible in Cali he couldn't couldn't handle it but uh he yeah he just he wanted to train as something he had no chance where he was living of becoming a farmer and so he just wanted to to go there and, and do it, and obviously for Syrians it was completely different. They did not want to be in Europe at all. Sure. I never yeah. met one that went. Oh, I really wanted to come here. It was it was like we had to leave. There was bombs dropping, and that was pretty straightforward. Or there was terrorist groups working in their areas, or you know, and for them it was like oh, the, 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 there was no choice. It was they didn't feel like there was any element of that they'd chosen this this life. It was forced upon them.
1: So that was the um, the first trip over, Barbara. You went back, like, hmm. how many times did you go back?
2: <laughs> oh, I actually don't know. I lost track.
1: It was more than five.
2: Ended up, yeah, oh, God, yeah. I, yeah. I would kind of do this thing where I'd come back for a week. I would come back for two weeks, go over for two weeks, come back for two weeks, that kind of thing. So I was pretty much living there, you know, by... So I started going back over again after the winter. I think it was March. I went over to do the radio documentary initially and I was only supposed to go for a week. And then I went back to... I just had that pattern then until um, until the camp was destroyed in October. So it became... I I was intending just on doing a documentary. Uh, Awareness out, get people's stories out. And uh, then actually I just got really sucked in. Mm-hmm. Um, to, did you see the yeah, same people inter-dific. still there
1: when you would go back
2: oh yeah yeah i would stay i would stay in in an area little syria i mean you know because he had nothing to do with syria <laughs> it's like it's totally not like syria obviously but uh, yeah and it was uh what would meet i would have friends in different communities so like uh some people would live up in the caravans the eritrean women um then there was guys over Sudanese guys that I know I wouldn't like obviously by the time the camp was destroyed there was 10,000 people there so you wouldn't know everyone but you'd you'd kind of know different areas it was like had a different uh different sense and a different atmosphere in different areas depending on what was going on and who was there and it became like a small town where you would kind of recognize people especially people who've been there a long time but like the idea was not to be there a long time the idea was it was stay there and use that as a base to try and get to the UK as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Though there were people there who were claiming in France and France doesn't have to provide you with money or accommodation while you're claiming. And so there was, a, I just said, you know, it would have been on the street otherwise and at least they had a shelter. Right, it wasn't okay. great. It was, you know, there was a kind of port and a little bit of running water, even though it had E. coli initially, but they did fix that up. And it was supposed to have been safe by the end. I hope it was because I was drinking at some I'm so sure it was grand so there was like a village from one place in Pakistan that they had come over pretty much en masse and they were staying there, they were claiming in France but they just had nowhere else to live so there, there was a, there was people like that there too
1: A whole village en masse do you know what, what prompted <laughs> them?
2: Oh, um, they were Shia and they were getting a lot of right. stick because of the area like you know be i'm gonna to apologize to you know your listeners who really know far more than i do i'm sure about all the, the geopolitics of these areas but there was it was a place in pakistan where being shia was a problem i think they they were getting hassles more than hassle they were beaten up They were some of them were being killed but, yeah um, but i'm not sure I, I don't actually even want to name the area anyway i do know the area but I
1: don't. yeah no sure it sounds that sounds like a very yeah. plausible story yeah the,
2: mm, it was. I know they, you, you know, know.
1: In Pakistan. I can, I can imagine that could be a problem for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and did you see the kind of conflicts that were going on uh, between these groups? Did they follow them to the camps at all? Where you still had people of? Uh,
2: no, I, I didn't see that. I have heard now in Greece, there's a lot of trouble between some Dash guys from Idlib that are have they killed? I think two, British guys during Ramadan because they weren't doing Ramadan; they were drinking water and. They, they got annoyed. And there's there's a lot of trouble there, I think, between the different groups. But I didn't see it as much in Calais. Obviously, there was fighting, you know, a lot of fighting between people. But not for... I didn't feel it was for those kind of reasons. It was just, you know, for, you know, like the big fight that happened in May. It was... It was in the skip the queue, the food queue. And, and it was just like a pressure cooker. So the slightest thing, like, and it would just blow up. And then next thing a whole load of people started fighting in the queue and the next thing, knives were drawn and then wow. stones were out and then there was guns there too but I didn't see too much of that but there was a lot of damage done. I th- I know one of my friends said that she was sure that she saw um, dead people like lying on the ground with blood with sheets over them but the hospital never reported any that time so maybe they didn't want any more trouble but... Or repercussions from it. I I never found out really, but I heard it from a lot of people that they actually saw people getting killed at that time. And, and what, was, uh, what was the
1: result of the uh, demolition of the camp?
2: Um. Well, about four thousand people I think were sent to different CAOs. So they're like centers right. all over France. Um. The kids. Oh, it was a total disaster. I mean, oh Jesus. The kids were supposed to be put on the bus. So there was the kids were put initially into the container camp, which had been cleared out, and then they were supposed to get on the bus first. But it's a huge melee. Like they didn't have enough people really to facilitate. It was done very quickly. over three days, and the kids ended up. A lot of them ended up staying there and then running away. And it was just it was just a disaster. But they did manage to get, in fairness, <laughs> I say this to them. I think about 4,000 people were sent to CAOs. Well, then that was another kettle of fish then too because the CAO places were pretty manky. And some people were just deported directly from the A lot of the Africans, they were sent to CAOs down in the south of France and then put on a flight back to wherever. And um, Yeah, a lot of people legged it. So the in the month beforehand, it was very tense, the situation. A lot of people legged it to Paris or uh, Brussels or even over to Germany, or they would just kind of, people freaked, panicked. Nobody really knew what was going to happen. I didn't even know. I, I thought, you know, there was going to be riots or something. I really couldn't how it would have turned out. But they pretty much got everyone out. Okay. They fucked up with the kids big time. I mean, that was huge. And, and I really don't understand how they did it so badly. But about four and a half thousand people were sent on buses. But I mean, people still come back to Calais. There's, there's hundreds still there. Right. Not in that place. You can't go near. It. The actual site where the camp was is just, it's, it's uh, you can't go near it. But there's people in ditches and different other camps around there.
1: Do you see any end to this problem in sight, Barbara? Or is this going to be the continuation of people flooding into Europe and having to live in conditions like this and being sent back and trying to come again?
2: Yeah, it's always gone on and and it always will. I mean, people, for whatever reason, sometimes it's wars, sometimes it's poverty, sometimes it's persecution from a terrorist group, um, sometimes it's family dynamics. I mean, some people, you know, they just their family is really oppressive, or they they're gay, or they you know they don't want to be religious, or or whatever the reason is, or just yeah, the the, the economic factors. People will always want to move, but, but not, you know, we get a tiny percentage of people from, from places that come here and the general feeling is when they get here well, is a sense of disappointment and, um, I don't know, you, you kind of wonder, I, well, I don't know. I wonder what a lot of people, apart from the ones that really had to go, obviously, because there was bomb, extreme circumstances. Oh, for them they had no choice, and but even that's it, it, they had a choice. They could have stayed and died, and some of them would even say to you, no, "I wish I'd stayed and died." Right. it's just it's not, a lot, not a life here. They lost everything, and then dignity. A lot of the time in the process of seeking asylum, even if they get and they go through the whole thing, um, starting again, middle aged or, or you know, getting on in years, trying to just start from scratch again is incredibly. Difficult. For the younger ones it's easier for the younger ones they just work clothes and they they can kind of get on with things a bit better i think
1: so you'd mentioned something to me about um the syrians there was a syrian i think a man you were talking to who um saw the afghanis and how traumatized they were from like generations of war and said something like this he was concerned that the syrian children are going to grow up that way because Ah, the syrian children who are five or six years old now who have more than that even, who have known nothing but war.
2: You... Yeah, yeah, He, I remember, yeah, one of my friends saying that and I I didn't know what to say because, yeah, it, I suppose it's a possibility and what can you say? No, that everyone will be fine, oh, it'll be grand, no, it won't. Like, sure, yeah, they're, they're going to be damaged.
1: And did you see that more with the Afghanis in the camp from the kind of trauma that's
2: been going on? I you, the thing is, well, if, I've spoke to a lot of Afghans and they were just like, um, oh my God, we have such a bad reputation. And they would apologize sometimes on behalf of some of the kids or whatever. And you'd be just going, yeah, look, do you know, <laughs> obviously not all Afghans are like that, but they did have a reputation because like the younger ones were just a bit, disturbed and wild and aggressive and you know just yeah just a bit lost or completely lost not through their own fault or anything it's, it's circumstances had shaped them I mean you see your father getting killed in front of you, or your uncle or you are just growing up in extreme poverty and you know obviously it's going to affect you
1: sure you yeah did it change your perspective on things much spending time down there? I'm thinking particularly of questions about borders and open borders, closed borders, um, but anything else really? Did did you come away with a, a different or changed perspective on anything?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would have been probably more open borders before I went there. You know, I was pretty idealistic. I'm not saying that I think, there shouldn't be open borders i'm not saying that there should be i don't really know i i don't have a sense that i'm i'm wise or that i have solutions to this at all if anything it it muddied it more for me and made it less clear um like if i tried to think of the big situation i could just my head would just go fuzzy and i can't even can't even think about it it was just enough to just be there and just try and help in whatever small way I could with individuals um not like oh this big faceless kind of mass of refugees or migrants Mm -hmm. but just connecting with individuals or with certain groups of people who needed something and help that and maybe make a difference that way but for the big picture and I have no idea I really have no idea. (laughs) I think maybe people, governments and NGOs, well, you know, everyone should talk to people a bit more and listen to what they're saying. Um, You would get more of a sense of the determination people have and the grit they have. And, you know, just the balls of steel these people have in being able to survive so much and to, to keep going and have that dream of, getting to the UK, or oh, getting somewhere safe, getting getting a new life, um, it's pretty phenomenal. And it's not, you know, a couple of, um, I don't know, it would take a lot to stop that. <laughs> but, and I'm not even sure if you'd want to, I don't know, I always thought, you know, it would have been a good idea if the English had just, or, or even the Irish government who did kind of float this at one stage just screened some people from calais before they had to try and do that journey so it like okay if you could get on a truck or you could get on the ferry or you could get on the train through the train or whatever way you could manage to get there like that 20 miles or 20 kilometers and you could get there and then you could claim once you're in england it just seemed ludicrous like because you're putting people are putting their lives in danger there was so many people killed on the roads there um why not have a system where people could just choose from their country, or say, from you're in France and you want to apply to England to try and get asylum there for whatever reason? Uh, why not do it that way, rather than getting people to risk their lives? That that part of it just seems a bit cruel and unnecessary.
1: Yeah, sure. Are there any particular stories that stick with you, or stand out, or interactions that?
2: Oh God, there's just so many. I mean. I was just really, I I just feel very honoured that I got to meet a lot of people that I got to meet. I mean, obviously there was a lot of scumbags there too. And like, you know, your usual town of 10,000 people, there's going to be um, people you don't get on with and, you know, a lot of skullduggery going on. And then add into the mix that people are cold, hungry, or too hot and hungry or and the awful conditions and under pressure and missing their families that i think that was probably the worst part of it people who had come trying to get over so that they could send for their families and you know that loneliness and worry about their families back um that was probably the cruelest thing i think people could put up with the cold and the wet and the lack of food and, shit conditions and being treated horribly and the tear gas and the rats oh my god the rats they're like bloody dogs or something There, they're all over the place but you know all that you can kind of make a joke about and there was a good sense of camaraderie and you know people would help each other out as much as they could that kind of stuff you get you get through but the the loneliness the family um worrying about your family and friends i'm worrying about your country and like what that guy said i'm worrying about the next generation and just i don't know i'm not feeling welcome just feeling like oh god they really don't want us here it's a horrible feeling for anyone to have to have um and then you get to england and then you might be another year then with family unification i know people who just didn't see their families for two three years like. I don't
1: know. That does something to you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just imagine for Syrians, and I'm sure it's true of a lot of nationalities. But seeing just how quickly this—okay—I don't think people in Europe would necessarily want to live in Syria during the noughties right? But just from a livable country to what it descended into in a short mm. space of time, and just kept on descending and descending, no end in sight. You know, for. Syrians who around 2010 11 time were hopeful for better tomorrow, it just must be like soul destroying.
2: Mm. Absolutely. I mean, the sense of hope that some people had around 2011, and then to just see it and, and to just see it getting worse and worse and worse over the years, I have no end to it. And knowing that they can't go back, I mean, I think there's some Syrian government guy that said recently, you know, that they're gonna. You know, people who, who left, who ran away, so they say, you know, that they're going to get picked up when they come back. Um, that's a real fear and a real problem that people, even when the war finishes, people can't just go back. and. Sure, yeah.
1: Hit. I mean, you just wouldn't know what you were going back to, right? The idea mm. of like, I mean... You'd this... be
2: on a list somewhere, you know? Yeah, you
1: know? yeah this yeah, this no. experience is not going to have made Bashar Al-Assad a nicer person, you know, or the regime nicer <laughs> and more lenient you know so yeah just so destroying that way maybe um do give maybe a couple of anecdotes Barbara of particular interactions you had
2: with people okay I have one actually about this Eritrean guy that was so sweet and so lovely and uh, one time I don't know I give him money for something phone, phone credit or something so oh and that was the other thing And when I say i give them money, I hadn't given them money. People had given me money to give to people in the town. And that was kind of like how, um, you know, that would work. It would be people would do fundraisers in Ireland or they would just give money. I remember one woman, she gave me money. It was her 40th birthday and she just asked for donations instead. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I gave him, not from my money, obviously, um, this money for phone credit or something. And that was grand. And then I came back and I was trying to contact him, couldn't get in contact. But back again, I was like, I don't even want to say his name just because that's the other thing, like people who were there and then if they get to England and if they're this is proof that they've been to another European country then it affects their claims. Oh so. sure, yeah. And just being careful not to say people's names. But anyway, I'm sure home office in the sense of this. <laughs> but <laughs> but he, he goes to me, Oh yeah, he goes, I'm really sorry, Barbara. I was just like I met this homeless guy, this French homeless guy had come into the camp and he felt so sorry for him that he'd given him the money and says <laughs> oh my god like he probably he mightn't have been homeless and goes on yeah no he was he looked he was even worse dressed than the people in the camp and i was kind of going i hope he wasn't some bloody french crusty who just came in like (laughs) i need fallen, feeling sorry for him but i just thought it was so sweet and then that same guy like he would always be trying to help people and just i don't know I don't know. Yeah, I should, actually, maybe I should think about more um, more of those kind of things. But it is really hard because when when you say it's trying to think of people in the camp, it's like a whole lot of people just come really fast into my head and I don't know how I'd describe them or describe their lives or what they meant to me. Because obviously you form very close attachments.
1: Did did you find it kind of emotionally exhausting when you were coming back to... I suppose, like, you're going into a reality that is not the reality of the people around you back home in Ireland. Uh, yeah, and you're seeing but it was that.
2: really strange. It was it was very strange. It got yeah. to where I didn't really want to come out of there. I was quite happy to stay there and, and do work there and not come back here as much.
1: It must be hard when it people, like, and you're coming back yeah, and people it, are concerned it about... It kind, flipped, you know, yeah, it kind of flipped,
2: yeah, kind of... It kind of flipped and that was the reality and this was the not the reality. Right,
1: yeah. I think people have that experience that when they come out of like a, an impoverished area or a war-torn area, um, everything back in the Western world feels very false almost. It
2: feels like yeah. a illusion. Like and, it's not really and, the way and, they and, and so quiet. I was just, just so quiet. I couldn't... The camp was so noisy and there was always people around and there was always you no know, privacy. There's just no such thing as privacy. In in that kind of environment, and then you come back here and everything's kind of sterile and and cardboardy. Though I have to say, I oh, love oh, toilets. <laughs> you do start appreciating showers and toilets much more.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's the so, thing. You do you like being deprived of these kind of conveniences. Absolutely makes you appreciate how miraculous uh, they are.
2: And and also just psychologically, like knowing that people were were trapped there, that had no choice in it. I felt a certain amount of I don't know about guilt, but you know, kind of, yeah, I suppose it was maybe like a Jesus. How can I enjoy myself when people I know are living in such yeah. bad circumstances? Mm-hmm.
1: What What were your own living conditions like in the camp? Were you actually staying inside the camp? And
2: they were lovely, actually, um, very plush. Yeah, uh, actually, have I brought some of the blankets? They donated them to me when the camp was being destroyed. <laughs> I was donated a few blankets. Um it was lovely though. I actually when I think back at that shelter very fondly and uh very hard to leave it when the demolition was coming. <laughs> um yeah, bunk beds was very it was yeah, it was damp and it was cold. Um and then it was you know the physical stuff though isn't really that important. It's it's the it's the mental stuff. It's the emotional stuff, and um, you you do feel very ineffective then as well, because obviously you can't really do a huge amount to help people. Yeah, you can just sure. do little things, and you realise how how deep a lot of the problems are, and how how little you can really do. Um, and just some days, I know some people would just be really down, and you couldn't really do much about it. Um. And then that would affect you a bit but uh obviously i try not to cry in front of people mm. <laughs> that was one of my rules <laughs> god like
1: <laughs> how, how did you also get on with um not just coming back to your home well you know comparatively comfortable safe home environment uh, where everyone's well fed and mm. doing okay but regarding like the reactions of people back home and the wider media reaction, I'm not really so aware of how the Irish media is portraying this, right? But obviously um the British media tends to portray it a certain way about um in in the more right wing press.
2: I didn't I didn't really read much of it to be honest with you at the time. I I read a lot more so I went back and I read the articles that were out then and looked at YouTube things since then but Mm -hmm. at the time I wasn't able to, I just couldn't, there's a, there's an Irish publication called The Journal here and the comments are notorious for, for people's reactions and things. I just couldn't, couldn't engage with it, couldn't take much notice of it at the time because I just get too upset and also people, in fairness, unless you've been through it or you you know a lot of people or you have, you know, friends or people that you really care about who've gone through these things you know, you've got your political views or your you know, you've got your opinions. Uh, people can't can't know any better. I don't blame them. It's like, you know right. they just see all these people coming in and they're just these faceless mouths and like they're afraid and that's just a human reaction and I don't blame people for that. It was you know, most people here were grand they'd be like, Oh fair play to you, uh, um I had a couple of incidents, you know, and I had to I was getting a lot of weird phone calls that I, I anyway, but yeah. Um a couple of instances in a pub, but you know,
1: well, people being angry with you for going. Or... Like, yeah,
2: being angry with me, like seeing me is kind of like, what way did she put it? She said, like you know, you know, you're 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 helping them, like you know, you're kind of allowing this infiltration of Europe, and she felt it very that I was being a traitor to Ireland mm-hmm. by helping people there. But that was a very unusual. And you know what? I actually. I could see where she was coming from. Like, I wouldn't. I'm no problem with people being racist. Actually, or being anti-immigrant, or being you know, people can have whatever views they want. Like, I'll, I'll, as long as they don't hit me. You know, as long as they're not. Honestly, like, if they're not, if they're not, you know, physically abusive, and they're they're able to have just a conversation, and they're not too verbally abusive. You know, keep it kind of pretty civilized. I, I don't mind having these discussions because that's how people. Um, learn and I'm not saying that I know all the right things either because you know there was a a a band driver from Poland killed on the road to Calais um 2017 like from one of the roadblocks so like the roadblocks were dangerous and I can see why people mightn't want uh you know gangs of people setting up roadblocks to try and get into the UK that's you know that's that's oh yeah when I say
1: media, I'm not saying that because I think that um you know everything expressed there is wrong in substance okay mm. so mm. one of the complaints from people in britain um particularly like parts of england is that their communities have totally changed over the past 30 40 years with massive influx of immigration and they never had a say on that right they never no one ever asked them their opinion on whether they wanted the the nature mm-hmm. of their communities to shift and, and i totally get that and um I, I don't have a fixed opinion on open borders, closed borders myself. Other than I think it should basically be the decision of the people in the communities it affects. So I, I'm not saying it because it's wrong in substance. Um, but what I find um with the media is they they tend to that kind of thought goes hand in hand with the dehumanization of the people in these positions, right? And I think whatever decision mm-hmm. you make around whether you open or close borders or let people in or keep them out you have to do it with remembrance that they are people coming from conditions which are you know far worse than what people typically experience in in the UK and Ireland and western europe
2: mm-hmm. yeah i i can't i can't really i find it hard to read media accounts though even of things so if i read stuff about you know the crossing between turkey and greece for instance i can't actually read things objectively anymore because i just hear people's voices in my head from their actual crossings so i don't i kind of i'm so biased now and i can't separate out um the people that i know and their stories and if i see something on the media i don't see it oh there's a, a dinghy with these people on it it's like oh god i see and it's the person i see and so i don't know what it's like for people who don't have that emotional connection for them it's you know it's politics it's trying to figure out objectively what a solution might be and i i know if people can do that that's their job and that's what they're able to do that's that's great it's not something I would be able to do. I would be much too emotionally invested. So, for instance, you know, with the, in Ireland here, there was a place, Bala Hadrin, where where um, a couple of hundred Syrians came over to a, a disused hotel that they set up, and they hadn't told people in the area, and there was a bit of a thing about, oh, the government should have had uh, a consultation process with the locals, blah, blah, blah. And actually, you know, in the end, I was just going, I don't think they should have, because people in the community were okay once it was set up, and it was going, and... But if they'd had loads of public meetings beforehand, you would have had half the racists in Ireland going to them and stirring up stuff. And, you know, and it worked out okay. I mean, the people came there. A lot of them have been given places in different parts of Ireland now. And I don't know if people make just a bigger deal about it than than it has to be. <laughs> I'm not talking about, the, about England now and, and places where they have completely changed. Yeah. I'm just talking about in, in the Irish context. Um. The numbers are still really, really low. Yeah, sure. Percentage wise of the population. But there's still that argument, yeah, that you should consult with local people and I'm not I'm not really too sure <laughs> how that would actually ban out because people aren't always the most informed. But then I suppose you can always have discussions with them. One thing is just as well, I'm always kind of conscious as a non refugee and as someone who's, you know, had the life of had, and I have a passport and I can go pretty much anywhere I want. Um and I'm speaking on behalf of people who okay, I know I might know them very well, but you know, it's not my actual experience. And so I just want to caveat everything I say with I'm still it's still, you know, Barbara from Ireland talking about people and um you know, one thing one, one of them said, Tarek said was he's like, you know, but you could always leave. Like, that was the difference between you'd stay here and you, you know, he kind of was saying, yeah, it's great, you know, you come and it's, but you could always leave when you wanted. Yeah. You know, that, that's the difference. Yeah. And you can't understand what it's like. like. I can understand the rats and the, the cold and I can understand different parts of us, but you can't really understand the lack of choice until you actually have that. And, um, What's that Blur song, actually? Because that's, isn't that something no, about, you no, know.
1: It's, it's Pulp, um, Common People.
2: Is it Pulp? Yeah, yeah. It's so that, you never that live it kind common of thing. People. Like,
1: um, you'll never, you never live though. like
2: Common People. Something about, like, you know, you'll always have daddy's walk, money.
1: Calls for your dad, and he could end it all. That's, exactly, that's sort
2: of yeah. Exactly. I could always ring my dad and end it all. And, you know, that's, when it comes down to it, that makes a huge difference. Um. So, I'll just, yeah. I just want to reiterate
1: that. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Hungry Road was produced with support from the Mary Rafferty Journalism Fund and is available along with Barbara's other documentary work at a link below. To play us out, we have some music from the refugees in the camps recorded by Barbara's colleague, Isolde Hebe.